Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yes, folks. It's the Princess Bride on this episode of the Enneagram and a Movie Podcast. How you doing, guys? This is Mario. I'm here with the two TJs. TJ Ingracia, how you doing today? Uh, hanging in there. Doing pretty good. TJ Daw, there were seagulls in the background a few minutes ago. How seagulls, are you? I'm at home. Why are there seagulls? Yeah, I'm by the ocean. I live by the sea, and I'm very excited to talk about The Princess Bride, a wonderful film. Yeah. So as as I do, I, I watch this movie twice. I, I mean, I've seen The Princess Bride. I don't know how many times, right? I saw it, still remember seeing it in the theater and walking out with two feelings. Uh, number one, I would sell a limb uh, for Robin Wright. And uh, number two, Man, Oh Man, was that a great movie? So uh, I, I, I'm really excited to be talking about this. So um, The Princess Bride, uh, 1987, directed by Rob Reiner, uh, screenplay by uh, the great William Goldman. You know, this is a writer's movie. And T.J. Daw, as a writer, I'm curious about your perspective on this. Now, number one, has there ever been a greater screenwriter than William Goldman? Pure screenwriter, rather than, say, writer-director, you know, like a Woody Allen, that sort of thing. Although, I'd put him up there with any of those guys. But as far as a pure, gifted screenwriter... I'd put Aaron Sorkin somewhere up there, Ernest Lehman. Like it's a, it's a short list. Yeah, absolutely one it's of the greatest. It's a small group. And if also he's written yeah. a couple of volumes of memoir as well as a number of other books. I've read some of them. They're fabulously entertaining and interesting. I've never read any of his novels other than The Princess Bride. But yeah, supposedly just a guy who cranked it out and always wrote high quality stuff. Yeah, so we're talking about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Marathon Man, All the President's Men, Misery, A Bridge Too Far. Papillon, right? Uh, great, great things. And I actually did read, uh, I've read a couple of his books. I did read the novel of Marathon Man. I don't remember which came first. The novel. The, uh, novel or the screenplay. The novel did, yeah. So uh, really, really good book. And I recently rewatched the, uh, uh, the Marathon Man the movie. Really good movie and still holds up really, really well. So uh, I think one of the main reasons that this movie works as well as it does, uh, two reasons. Number one, every line is gold, right? I, I, I was, you know, I was watching it and I'm reading the sub. I always put the subtitles on because I'm old and I'm slow and I don't hear so well. And so, you know, I want to have the, I want to have the, 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 the subtitles up there as I'm watching movies these days. And I'm just looking at it and I'm thinking, this is good good stuff and there's not a line i'd take out there's not a line i would change it's it's jewels and i also think the reason this movie works so well is because of the metafictional aspect of it right it is a grandfather telling a grandson a story reading him a book and because of that you're able to suspend disbelief you're able to just not pick at the plot you know it's a kid's tale but 
a very mature and knowing kid's tale. It's made for adults, right? But you're willing to just sit back and enjoy it, right? Uh, thoughts on that, if any. Something Goldman said when he was writing in one of his memoirs about this was that when he was writing the novel, it was coming up with that device because the novel's also written that way that helped him figure out how to do it because he had all of these different things in mind and this allowed him to jump from one to the other as well as remind the reader that what we're doing. So the film has the exact same equivalent. Like we're constantly reminded this is a story that's being told and that takes away some of the preciousness and self-importance yes. that fantasy almost always has. Like the world is at stake. Great things are happening. Everything is grim. Everything is very serious. There might be a comedic character, but we take this all very, very seriously. This is not that. This yes. is, we're here to have yes. a great time. We're here to tell a rip-roaring yarn and get caught up in it. And funnily enough, even though you're constantly reminded that you're watching a tale, you still get emotionally involved. You'd think that one would negate the other, but it's actually just the opposite. Yes, absolutely. Which speaks to the power of the story, right? And, and I'll also say, I can't think of a better casted movie that I've ever seen. And we'll come back and talk about that in a little bit about the casting of this, because there are some interesting and famous stories about it. But um, I, I think that helps too. TJ and Gracia, thoughts on those things? Uh, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, growing up, my family and even my extended family, there were several movies that we all sort of knew and loved and quoted uh, while you were sleeping with Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman. What about Bob with Bill Murray and The Princess Bride? And so I was trying to think this week, how many times have I seen this movie in my life? And I'd probably put the over under somewhere around 50, maybe, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, you know, many dozens and dozens and dozens of times, mostly in my childhood. It's been a long time since I've seen it, actually, uh, but just one of my all time favorites. Yeah. And, and so, because I was going to ask, having seen it so many times, was it a chore to watch this time or did you enjoy it? Oh, I, I, I think I could watch it every day forever. It's, <laughs> it's, it's much a joy. And because I love, uh, I love movie quotes. And yes. so there's about 10,000 quotable lines. I mean, like you said, every single line is quotable from this film. Yes. And so it's fun yes. to sort of do you know, slightly reverse mystery science theater, like just quote along with the movie. You know? Yes. Yes. I live right by a really big park. And in the summer, there's a series of screenings on a huge inflatable screen of movies and room in front of that. And it's free room for about a thousand people. And an early date that my partner and I were on was to go see that. And that was great, great fun to watch the Princess Bride outdoors by the beach with about a thousand strangers quoting along with the quotable lines as the movie happened, which just emphasized just how full of quotable lines yes. it is, how full of favorite moments and how much this infiltrated just popular culture. Because the movie didn't make that much money in the theaters. It became a cult hit when it came out no. on video. And it's just yes. grown and grown and grown to the point that if you reference this movie, you can just trust people will know exactly what you're talking about. They'll probably join in. Yes. Yes. It, as far as quotability, Really, uh, the only other movies I can think of that are close, Casablanca, 
Uh, you know, when you rewatch Casablanca, uh, I don't know so much about you guys' generation, but certainly in my generation, you watch it and you say, oh my goodness, that, you know, almost every line is something that you would hear people say, right? And uh, maybe Lebowski, right? But Lebowski's not in the same volume of quotes as this is, right? I was going to say uh, Dumb and Dumber, but this is different categories of films. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. All right. Okay, so I'll tell you what, there's some more things I want to come back and talk to about uh, regarding the movie in general, but for that oddball listener out there who may not have seen The Princess Bride, I'm going to do a bit of a recap because, again, I think this was my pick, uh, just as a reminder of folks that this was kind of a potpourri season and, uh, we were, you know, just picking movies that we liked. And, uh, one of the TJs mentioned the princess bride in conversation. And I said, ah, we got to talk about the princess bride. And so here we are. But again, 1987 movie directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, the story is a grandfather arrives at the home of his sick grandson to read a book that has been passed down from generation to generation, the princess bride. The boy's initially resistant, fearing that it's going to be a kissing book. Eventually, however, the boy becomes enthralled. And just again, a touch on this idea of casting, Fred Savage, the ultimate 1980s boy, right? I mean, you know, star of Wonder Years from the 1980s, just the perfectly cast boy. And Peter Falk, you know what I mean? What more delightful grandfather can you imagine than uh, Peter Falk, who was in his 60s at the time, uh, but was concerned he didn't look old enough to be Fred Savage's grandfather, apparently, until Rob Reiner you know, convinced him, nah, I think we'll be okay. So uh, the tale is about Buttercup, a young woman living on a farm in the fictional kingdom of Florin, who takes pleasure bossing around the farm boy, Wesley. Wesley complies to every demand, responding with only, as you wish. Buttercup soon realizes that what he really means is, I love you, and she is surprised to find out that she loves him in return. Wesley decides to take to sea to seek his fortune, but the ship he is on is attacked by the dread pirate Roberts, and Wesley is assumed dead. Fast forward five years, and Buttercup is being forced to marry evil Prince Humperdinck, distraught over having to marry someone she doesn't love and still mooning over the true love she found with Wesley, Buttercup goes for a ride on her horse and is kidnapped by three outlaws who have been hired by Humperdinck to start a war with rival country Gilder. To help with the job, evil Sicilian mastermind Vizzini, played by the wonderful Wallace Shawn, has hired Greenlandian giant Fezzik, played by the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant, and Spaniard Inigo Montoya, who is on a quest to find and get revenge on the six-fingered man who murdered his father. The three, plus their hostage Buttercup, soon find themselves pursued by a man in black, with Humperdinck and his men also hot on the trail. The masked man catches up to them at the Cliffs of Insanity and bests Inigo in a sword duel, bests Fezzik in hand-to-hand combat, and bests Fizzini in a battle of wits to the death. He takes Buttercup and reveals himself to be Dread Pirate Roberts, and when she pushes him down a very steep hill while cursing him and wishing him dead, he hollers out, as you wish, upon where she realizes this is her lost love, Wesley, and she tosses herself down the hill to uh, meet him at the bottom. 
one of the funniest darn scenes. Just the even even them rolling down the hill was funny. You know, I mean, just the the way they did it was wonderful. All right, so um, they find themselves in the fire swamp, and Wesley explains that he is was captured by Dread Pirate Roberts, but became his vassal and eventual replacement because Dread Pirate Roberts is actually a title passed on after each successive pirate has made his sufficient fortune. Wesley and Buttercup survive the fire swamp, encounters with quicksand and rodents of unusual size, only to be captured by Humperdinck. Buttercup promises to marry Humperdinck if he returns Wesley to his ship, but Humperdinck instead has his henchman Count Rugen, the same six-fingered villain who killed Indigo's father, take Wesley to be tortured in the pit of despair. Meanwhile, Inigo and Fezzik are reunited and go on search of Wesley to seek his help in storming the castle. They rescue him from the pit of despair, where they find him in a state of mostly dead. They take him to Miracle Max to be brought back to life, and although Wesley can barely move his limbs, they launch their assault. Inigo gets his revenge on the six-finger man, Wesley rescues Buttercup, and they ride off on four white horses to live happily ever after. Back in the real world, the boy asks his grandfather to come back the next day and read the book again, to which the grandfather replies, as you wish. So, you know, I even just reading that, that last part makes me tear up. It's just such a sweet, sweet movie, right? It's, it's a movie just filled with delight. So we talked earlier about how this is a writer's movie, but I also, the director was Rob Reiner here. And I was amazed at the run that Rob Reiner had in the 1980s. Okay, so we start with 1984. This is Spinal Tap. Okay, cult classic, brilliant, wonderful movie. The Sure Thing, 1985's The Sure Thing with John Cusack. Now, a movie you can't find anymore. Very much got kind of me tooed, and it's one of those movies that, um, you know, is not appropriate to watch anymore because of the concept. But a really funny actually kind of a sweet movie if you know uh and in the execution was not as bad as it sounds right um stand by me 1986 1987 the princess bride 1989 when harry met sally 1990 misery 1992 a few good men i'm going to jump over north in 1994 but 1995 the american president i mean wow you know, what a run of movies. And then kind of just decided to take it easy, it seems, you know, because he never really captured those heights in the same way. Do you, how well do you guys remember these movies in, in, in the moment? TJ uh, Ingrassi, were you born yet? Yeah, I was born in 85. So I think I've seen most of those films at some point when I was a kid. They weren't part of my cultural milieu exactly. I'm a little uh-huh. young for that side. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm a big Rob Reiner fan. Yeah, I didn't see Spinal Tap till long after. till it became one of those things that it's really weird if you haven't seen it. Although it was completely obscure when it did come out. I was the same age as the kids in Stand By Me when that came out. So I saw that at a drive-in theater and it immediately became a favorite of me and everybody at school. We just loved it. And then Princess Bride was more my sister's movie than mine. She loved reading fantasy and she and her best friend would quote lines from it all the time, but I eventually saw it on video and loved it. And then I didn't see When Harry Met Sally until my first relationship in my early 20s. And it was my first girlfriend's favorite movie. I just blew me away. So yeah, excellent movies, quite the streak. 
And I'm embarrassed to say this, but I still have not seen Stand By Me. I don't know why. I have it on a DVD. I can see it right across my room here. And for some reason, I just have not seen it yet. Uh, But all these other movies I saw in the theater, including This Is Spinal Tap, I still remember seeing it in the theater. Uh, 1984. Good grief. All right. So, um, yeah, hats off to Rob Reiner. Fantastic job. And the casting of this. Did you guys read anything about the casting? Anybody want to comment on that? Yeah, that Arnold Schwarzenegger had been interested in playing Fezzik. Yeah. <laughs> Very different uh-huh. movie. <laughs> Although if you think of the Arnold Schwarzenegger from Twins, it could have worked, right? I mean, in the movie Twins, he had that sort of innocence and, you know, that childlike quality of it. I think could have worked as Fezzik, but go ahead. What else? Yeah, I think William Goldman had said that his ideal buttercup would have been Carrie Fisher. Who I think would really? have been amazing in it. I think she absolutely oh, would have been wonderful, especially if it had been made in the seventies, because supposedly this movie yeah. was in development for a long, more than a decade, with all yes. kinds of possibilities. Yes, we're going to make it. Oh no, we're not going to make it. And that happened again and again and again. Yes. So there were many possibilities of who it might be cast with. Uh, so about the history of that, because you're right, a lot of different directors tried to make this movie, and always something fell through. A big part of it was they just didn't know how to package it. Right? It's not. You know, I mean, how do you describe this movie? What genre do you put it into? What's your log line for, you know, a movie like this? It's it's really, really difficult. But Rob Reiner always wanted to do it. And he relied on Norman Lear to get the funding for him. Norman Lear came through. You know, they had the relationship from all in the family. And uh, Norman Lear was able to get it done. They screen tested 500 actresses to play Buttercup and could not find the right uh, person. And it was two weeks before uh, filming was about to start. And it was a great story. So Robin Wright, uh, she had she had done some acting. And she was introduced. Let me see if I find this story. Sorry. So um, Wright's agent had heard of the casting call and encouraged Wright to audition. Uh, though initially shy, she impressed Jenkins and later Reiner. They invited Wright to come meet Goldman at his house. Jenkins recalls the doorbell rang. Rob went to the door, and literally, as he opened the door, Robin was standing there in this little white summer dress with her long blonde hair, and she had a halo from the sun. She was backlit by God, and Bill Goldman looked across the room at her, and he said, well, that's what I wrote. It was the perfect thing. So she and, and she was. She was just, you know, perfect for this role. She has that innocent beauty that I think, you know, really, really works. Carrie Elway's a great cast, uh, you know, great uh, role there. I was just going to say, I've always been iffy on how to pronounce his last name. If it's Elwes or Elways or... And sure. I have no idea if I'm saying it right or not. So <laughs> You are. That is right. My sister always called him Carrie Ewells, I guess, inadvertently. Ewells. Substituting two <laughs> consonants. Uh-huh. Hey. Uh, Mandy Patinkin and uh, Wallace Shawn were two of the most early cast characters and absolutely perfect for, um, uh, for those roles. I mean, I think Mandy Patinkin brings this um, sensitivity to the role uh, that uh, made the character so lovable of uh, uh, Inigo Montoya. Um, Wallace Shawn has to be his best role, uh, certainly his most memorable role. Uh, you know who else was know, up really for it? Fan. Danny, Danny DeVito. DeVito. <laughs> yeah. You got to get a little guy. 
Yeah, well, sure, sure. And uh, and uh, apparently they, they wanted uh, Andre the Giant uh, kind of the, the whole time, and uh, he was supposed to be doing a, uh, a world wrestling uh, tournament and, uh, or show in, in Japan for like he was going to get paid $5 million for. And they said, well, we can't match that. But then that match fell through and he became available again. But you're right, they did look at Arnold Schwarzenegger and a bunch of other uh, large people. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Ferrigno, Liam Neeson was one of the people considered, but they they didn't think he was tall enough. But Andre the Giant, man, tell me about your reaction to Andre the Giant in this role. Just a big teddy bear. (laughs) This could open up our first category, which is just the most, I don't remember how the phrasing of it, but just the clearest Enneagram type we're seeing in this. Just such a perfect nine, I think. Fezzik has just got, he's the gentle giant, which not all nines are that. Nines come in all shapes and sizes, but that is one of the icons. They're not all giants. (laughs) But they're all gentle. Uh, And and the gentle giant, the notion of being the gentle giant is so him. And that's such a big part of his character. And supposedly that's what he was like off screen as well. Like he was, he would call everybody on the film set boss so that his huge size Mm. didn't imply that he thought that he was better than them. And supposedly children had two reactions to him. One is they'd be terrified of him. The other is that they would treat him like he was the best toy they'd ever seen and climb all over him like he was a jungle gym. And he <laughs> loved it and sometimes would just hold his hand out with a palm up for a child to sit on for as long as they wanted. <laughs> so there's this gentleness to him, even though he's a thug in this. He's a criminal henchman, but he feels really bad when he finds out that the plan includes killing somebody. And yes. when he finds out what's my way, which is to smash the man in black with a rock, he <laughs> says to himself, my way is not very sportsmanlike. And he doesn't do it. You know, he drops his rock so they can fight hand to hand to at least give his opponent a chance. Right. And he even says to him, uh, because uh, uh, Wesley says, you know, are, are you taking it easy on me or something like that? And he says, he says, yes, I don't like my opponents to die embarrassed, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> I want you to feel you're doing well. <laughs> yeah, I want you to feel you're doing well. Right. Yeah, good call. So a, a pretty strong nine-ish. Uh, sort of character um, and uh, just just delightful. So again, I'm of an age where I remember when he was at his peak as a wrestler and whenever, you know, because as a you know, young teenage boy, I would like most would watch, uh, you know, WWF it was at the time and, uh, you know, twice a year Andre the Giant would be on, you know, maybe. And it was such a big event because he was, you know, for those of you who don't, he was seven foot four, well over 500 pounds, just this massive massive human being and just you just could not help be of being be in awe by him and suffered Uh, for his size though also absolutely was dead by 47 i think um you know he suffered from gigantism and caused a lot of health problems yeah apparently on the set in the scene in the end when buttercup jumps into his arms they had to rig her up on wires because he wasn't able to support her weight and then in the fight scene with wesley uh, they also had to rig up special supports because having him on his back was incredibly painful for him. He also wrestled 300 nights a year, which as a touring performer myself, wow. I've never even come close to wow. one third of that. So supposedly he was delighted on set because he didn't have to be somewhere the next day because that was just his life. That's what he was used to. Every day, travel, wrestle, travel, wrestle. And for a guy who's that right. big, I mean, I'm 6'2", and sometimes I'll get cramped in an airplane seat. To be seven foot six or however tall he was and 500 pounds, like I cannot imagine 
<laughs> how he lasted even as long yeah. as he did. I, I, I doubt the guy's flying jet blue, right, right. Uh, back in, you know, coach. Yeah, right? I feel sorry for the poor bastard who has to sit next to him on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Uh, other casting um, comments there. Let's see. You know, I, I think we, we, we jumped over Wallace Shawn. I love, love, love Wallace Shawn. I mean, I'll watch him in anything. And uh, I even have sat through my dinner with Andre multiple times uh, over the years just to enjoy Wallace Shawn in, the, in that role. Um, tell me, guys, your reaction to Vizzini as a character. I think he's absolutely hilarious. Like, it's just such a good role. It, Wallace Shawn pretty much always plays the same role, which is the yeah. little squeaky guy who's, who's yes. kind of the equivalent of a small dog that barks a lot. And yes. that's part of what makes it work, is that he's not really threatening. No matter how much he screams, he's still lovable. Yes, yes. Enneagram type. Oh, that good. Go ahead, TJ, before we get to Well, I was just going to say, ahead. yeah, it's an interesting dynamic between Vicini, Inigo, and Fezzik that, you know, Wallace Shawn is this little guy, and especially compared to Andre the Giant, you know, whatever, he's two and a half feet taller than this guy or yeah. whatever. But he's, Fezzik is almost not cowering in front of him, but he just sort of, Goes along with whatever Vicini says, no questions asked. He's definitely in charge of the group. He's sort of the brains of the operation. Right. But either of them could easily kill him at a moment's notice, no hesitation. Right, right. I think there's a strong argument for five and a strong argument for one. So if, again, we were going by our categories of most conflicted Enneagram portrayal, this is what I'd go with. Because as a five, he leans with his mind. He leads with his mind. That's his superpower. And that's what eventually gets him killed, is his unfailing trust that he's the smartest person in the room and that no one can best him in a battle of wits. On the other hand, he's not exactly detached. You know, he's he's very involved. We never find out what his motivation is for wanting to start a war between Florin and Gilder. We, we don't get that much of a sense of his inner life, but he's active. He's loud. His dominant mode of communication is scolding and yelling. And his, his, his famous catchphrase is just the word inconceivable. And he says that again and again and again. And the translation that I get from that is things are not unfolding as they should, which struck me as very one-ish. Not just, I didn't see that coming, but that should not be happening. That's not the way the world operates. I think some of that makes sense. Where I landed on Ultimately, I landed on eight with a strong connection to five, leaning on his five support strategy. I mean, like you said, he has this intense intellectual arrogance, uh, but he doesn't seem quite as detached as a straight five would, would feel like. He's definitely, he's got short man's disease for sure. Uh, he's exercising a lot of, he's overcompensating, I think, for his lack, for his physical size, for this power that he's sort of exerting over Inigo and Fezzik. Uh, you know, when, when Fezzik isn't climbing the rope uh, fast enough, he says, I do not accept excuses. I'm just going to have to find myself a new giant. He's taunting Buttercup about the eels. He seems to relish having some power over these other people. So uh, I landed on eight with a connection to five, but uh, I can also see some of that one-ish scolding. So this is interesting. And, and so, you know, as I tend to do, I kind of jumped all over the categories here. And so our, you know, our, our first category is typically most enneagrammatic scenes or characters. And I actually had Vizzini listed there as one of the most clear enneagram characters as a six. 
And, you know, again, you know, uh, not uh, uh, we're, we're talking fiction here and that sort of thing. But what I saw in him. So we talk about six is striving to feel secure. OK. Um, and struck me as kind of a transmitting six of that, you know, which uh, people will talk about as sort of a counterphobic kind of character right so there's this aggressiveness but there was also and and the thing that for me uh sold it so there was two things when they were having the um they were going to drink the poison right and he's working himself up into this but it could be this and it could be this and it could be this and just energetically the character seemed very sixish to me right you know it's that that yapping small dog you know my apologies to all my six friends out there right but that's kind of a you know uh almost a woody allen-ish energy you know and uh that sort of thing and it was this back and forth it could be this could be this could be this um and also there's a tendency in sixes and this has to do with the connection to three where they fall into what i call needy boasting right it's i am demonstrating my value in this way i'm you know I'm, I'm i'm talking about my accomplishments to bolster myself to make myself feel comfortable to make everybody you know feel like you know oh yeah okay he's uh, he's somebody and so forth so uh, so that's how i read those things right as uh, kind of a six-ish trait but you know uh, i think arguments could be made all around the place there so inter interesting how again we bring these things and we can see uh, different aspects and behaviors if you want to find out more about my work with the enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media hi i'm tj daw and i do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as enneagram coaching I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. What other clear Enneagram types did you guys see? I thought Count Rugen was maybe one of the best fives I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. Talk yeah. about detached. You know, he's just completely straight-faced. From what little I've heard about Christopher Guest. Off and this is for science, so please be honest. <laughs> exactly. Right? He's an expert on pain. He's writing the definitive volume on pain. He wants the victim of his torture machine that he spent half his lifetime building in his underground lab, which is underneath a tree in the forest. So it's, he's got the obscurity of a five too, <laughs> the secretiveness, the interest in something morbid. And he wants his victim to give him his testimony about what it was like. And when he just hears that whine, his response is interesting. And then later in the confrontation with Inigo Montoya, when he pieces together who he is, you're that little Spanish brat I taught a lesson to all those decades. Mm. Have you been pursuing me this entire time only to fail now? I think that's the most awful thing I've ever heard. How delightful. But again, says this with the straightest face ever. Anything I've heard about Christopher <laughs> right. Guest has led me to suppose that he's possibly a five in real life. He is very quiet, mm. very hard to relate to, supposedly, not conversational, and loves just watching strange things happen. Yeah, I love Christopher Guest films. Uh, you know, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind are three of my all-time favorite films. But watching him in interviews, he is the most humorless, 
like deadpan. I don't think I've ever seen him smile in real life. It's such a weird contrast between who he is in real life and the characters that he plays in these films. Supposedly, this is Spinal Tap originated with him sitting in a hotel lobby waiting for a friend and witnessing the attempted checkout of a band from that same hotel where there was a just a looping conversation between the bass player and the manager about the fact that the bass player had forgotten his bass guitar in the previous city. And the manager just kept reading, are you telling me you left your guitar? Well, I don't have it, do I? <laughs> so you lost your bass guitar. Well, I haven't got it, do I? And they just kept saying that on a loop. And Christopher Guest sat there watching this thinking, I could stay here for days. Like he just <laughs> endlessly fascinated by this. And that became Spinal Tap. One more note on Count Rugen as a type five in the scene where Humperdinck comes in and raises the bar to 50 on Wesley. It cuts to a shot of Count Rugen and he's got this horrified look on his face, but then it morphs very subtly into like intense curiosity. He's horrified, but also intrigued by this new data of what will this look like when someone goes to 50? <laughs> He'd mentioned before that maybe someday I'll go up to five, but I don't know what that would do to you. <laughs> right. so yeah, 50. Oh, right. interesting. I think that's a good call, guys. I, I, I like that. Okay, so I'm going to go out on a limb here with what I thought was a pretty good depiction. And I'm going to suggest that Buttercup is a navigating one. And I'll, I'll share my rationale for that. So, first of all, kind of hard to get a read on her. She's an idealized character for sure. I think arguments could be made for kind of a two-ishness, kind of a nine-ishness sort of thing. But First of all, I think Robin Wright in real life is probably a navigating one. Okay? I think one of the reasons that she um, never became the big star she certainly could have is because she's not a transmitter, right? She didn't have that urge to just, you know, transmit beyond stage. She had this kind of ambivalence around fame. It seems like she kind of got into acting because she was just so darn good looking and, you know, it just seemed like the way to go. Um, in... Uh, House of Cards, I think she plays an excellent navigating one character, right, uh, in, in that show. What makes me think of Buttercup as a navigating one, so in the opening scenes where she's, you know, taking this pleasure in bossing around the, you know, the, the, the uh, farm boy, there is this kind of, you know, I want to be able to tell people what to do sort of thing before she realizes she's in love. But even more telling, the navigating one, I think, is a subtype that is often misunderstood. Now, other people call this the social one. And people have a tendency to think the so-called social one is a reformer, somebody who wants to change the world. Okay, That's not what's going on here. What this character wants is to follow the rules. Right. To do the right thing by society's expectations. Okay. So it's not, I want the world to be right or I want you to be right. I want to make sure that I am acting appropriately. And the dream she has where that old woman is booing her, right? And calling her all these names is a reflection of this fear that I'm doing the wrong thing here. Right. And I think this is something we see in her. There's this sort of stiff, lipped quality that she has you know this sort of you know when she's talking about true love it doesn't it feels more moral than it feels passionate right it feels more idealized than it does you know lustful in some way so um i think it's a pretty interesting description of a one in a way that they're not typically understood in the literature agreed i had her typed as a one as well i 
Another thing, in addition to the things you mentioned, she's not afraid to scold the man in black, her kidnapper, or Vizzini, her kidnapper, or Humperdinck, she, who's <laughs> the prince, you know, soon to become king. She'll tear a strip off them. And yeah. the way that Humperdinck is able to fool her is by swearing on his honor. Yes. And that's something that would resonate with a one. And it really doesn't occur to her until way into the story that he might have lied because to a one that's unthinkable. You give me your word yeah. then. Okay. Because to a one, their word is their bond and uh, very much all or nothing thinking. She genuinely intends to kill herself rather than marry Humperdinck. I would <laughs> right. rather be right. dead than live without integrity. Yes. And, and it is kind of a, a moral stance. Again, it's not heartbreak, you know, it's not, Oh, I can't bear this. It's, no, this is not right. And the only right response to it is for me to kill myself, you know, and uh, so, so I agree. Uh, TJ and Gracia. Different take. Uh-huh. All right. So this uh -huh. is very interesting. Um, so, man, <laughs> I, if I had a thousand years with this movie, I never would have guessed one. <laughs> I, I had her as a four all day long. Oh, wow. And maybe part of this is because uh, I might be biased because my wife is a four. And a lot uh -huh. of the, I felt like I was watching my wife through the, through the course of this film. She's very concerned. Obviously, she's in love with Wesley. And so love and being connected to her true love is, is the big thing for her. And so I interpret it as, I agree, she intends to, there's a scene, she's putting the knife on her chest. She's about to kill herself. I interpreted that more as, I would rather be dead than be forced to be married to someone who's not my true love. And she just has this sort of melancholy. I feel like she has a very melancholy aspect through most of the film. She's moping around the castle after uh, Humperdinck takes her back from the fire swamp. She says to Wesley before he reveals himself that I've loved more deeply than a killer like yourself could ever dream. And when he says to her, oh, do you think your dearest love is going to save you, referring to Humperdinck, the first thing she says is, I never said he was my dearest love. She's very offended by this idea that that's not my love. This is who my love is. So um, near the beginning, when she's captured, the, he's, the line from the book is something like, uh, the only comfort she took was riding her her daily horse rides. Basically, the only way she can escape is to be alone in the woods riding her horse. I don't know, maybe some stereotypical melancholy uh, pining for this idealized love kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I saw her as a four all day long. Uh, TJ Dahl, are you swayed by any of that? Uh, no, not really. I mean, her, I, <laughs> she would seem more like a four if she was mooning before her true love yes. left and died, as well as after. And in fact, if she was a four, it's quite likely that, or if he was a four, that they never would have had that first kiss in the first place. They, they might have chosen to just love from afar or assume that the other person doesn't love me and then burn with unrequited love <laughs> and self-loathing of the fact that, of course, true love isn't available for me. The person is there, but they don't know that I love them and they can't know that I love them because, of course, they don't love me. Yeah, so for me, what's missing regarding the four uh, is emotionality, right? I mean, I just, you know, with her, you know, all those things you're saying are true, TJ, um, you know, but I, they feel circumstantial to me, right? Like almost anybody would be experiencing those things in that sort of situation. And, um, you know, and there's a, when, when I think of fours, I always think of kind of wetness, 
in some way, you know, some some form of, you know, moisture, right? Uh, you know, some emotionality, right? And um, with with Buttercup, it felt, you know, it, it I, I just didn't feel any real emotionality. Even her, whenever she would even talk about her love and her emotions, there was almost an intellectualizing of it in a sense or an idealizing and not this sort of, you know, embodied sort of, emotionality that I that I felt so you know I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying descriptively uh, I for me it just points to oneness but, but you know interesting take so uh, well, there was a one four connection so there's something going uh, there on there you go there you go and this may be the first time that uh, we've tried to convince you that somebody was a one TJ <laughs> <laughs> she's not perfect enough to be a one guys <laughs> oh come on man you know come on also for the title uh, character she doesn't do that much no, she's it's no, it's she a doesn't. pretty small role given that it's a lead. She's kind yeah. of a MacGuffin in some ways. <laughs> yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. You're you're right. You're There's right. very yeah. few women That's in this it. movie, which is kind of surprising given how beloved the movie is by so many women. Yeah. Um, Wesley, thoughts on Wesley? Uh, three is my sense of him. He's proficient. He became proficient at everything he could learn when he went off and apprenticed under the dread pirate Roberts and became very, very good at swordplay, at acrobatics, at hand-to-hand combat. He's in excellent shape. He's also an excellent sailor. Deception's a thing of his. He changes, playing a role, you know. Threes are sometimes maligned with the term deception. I don't mean to imply that threes are pathological liars or anything like that, but he understands the value of playing a role as the Dread Pirate Roberts, as the man in black. And he, like a healthy three, doesn't necessarily identify with the role. He's ready to give up being the Dread Pirate Roberts and live a happy life aside from his role. And he beats Humperdinck with a bluff. So this is something I've also known threes to be able to do is use deception for good, use it as a tactic. And he does it very, very well. And he knows exactly how to press Humperdinck's buttons. He knows when to insult him, when to intimidate him when to use a little bit of strength he has. Um, TJ Ingrassia. I was conflicted on Wesley. I didn't get a solid read. I saw, I agree, there's some three stuff there. I also thought maybe there could be some transmitting two-ish kind of stuff. He has some uh, raw sexuality, I would call it. You know, he's very, he's he's a very beautiful man <laughs> in The Princess Bride. I'll give him that. <laughs> Obviously very connected with Buttercup. He's sort of taking care of her. There's a, as they're walking through the fire swamp, he's sort of, they're just sort of talking casually. And it seems without even realizing it, he's picking her up. He's moving away from the fire. He's sort of taking care of her needs. After he fights Inigo, and he defeats him in the sword fight. And then after he defeats Fezzik in the hand-to-hand combat. He's very connected with both of them. I, I really like the dynamic between him and Inigo at first. You know, Inigo throws him the rope. He climbs up to the top. They have this conversation about their backstory, and he's like, oh, no, no, wait, wait until you're ready. And Inigo pulls out his sword and hands it to him. You know, there's, there's this immediate respect and c- connectedness between the two. Uh, that you're my enemy, we're going to try to kill each other, but I'm going to hand you my weapon first so you can see how how great it is. But the point I was trying to make is that after he defeats Inigo and after he defeats Fezzik, he talks to both of them. You know, he tells Inigo, please understand, I hold you in the highest respect. Uh, To Fezzik, he says, I don't envy the headache you're going to have, but in the meantime, rest well, dream of large women. Right, right, right. And so there's there's sort of a connection that he has to both of them, even after they're passed out, he's still talking to them. 
So it's a little bit yeah. of a stretch there. I mean, I think it's not yeah. the clearest thing, but I saw a little bit yeah, of Yeah, it, it's, it's not clear, but I think that's a pretty good call. Uh, I mean, I was kind of leaning to three with Wesley too, but it didn't feel quite right. I mean, I agree with everything you said, TJ Daw, about the, you know, uh, the, you know, I'm going to master this, I'm going to master that. Um, but that, that transmitting two thing does, because he, I, I felt more emotionality coming from him than I did from Buttercup. Right. I mean, he seemed to be more, you know, emotionally connected uh, to her than she was to him uh, in that way. In the scene uh, just before she pushes him down the hill, he's before he's revealed himself, he's very upset with her that she is engaged to Humperdinck. And he says, you know, yes, yes, because he's he's comparing He's telling the story as if Wesley is this third person. You know, he he spoke of your enduring faithfulness. You know, tell me, princess, did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead, or did you get married that same, get engaged that same day? So um, there is this two-ish kind of trait where if you don't reciprocate their love, they can turn on you, and the claws can come out. And uh, right, I think we right. see flashes of that in that scene. Uh, just one more thing to add to Wesley as a possible two: the phrase "as you wish," pretty darn two-ish. <laughs> a way to communicate this love. This is this is true. It wasn't aren't I awesome? You know, it was uh, <laughs> Or look at me do this thing. Yeah. yeah right. And the yeah. only other thing I'll say about the th- the three ish qualities, TJ, is that and I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but I saw Prince Humperdinck as a pretty clear three to me. And so it could be I was blinded by thinking of three in terms of Humperdinck and, you know, whatever missing three ish qualities there could have been in Wesley there. Well, I also see Inigo Montoya as a three. Oh, he really? oh. came up with a life's mission and then became the best, the best swordsman in the world, or at least until he meets the man in black and fights with his left hand because he wants it to be a good fight. He wants it to be a challenge. He admires the proficiency of the man in black as they're fighting. He, you know, he says to him, you're magnificent. He's so impressed with him. Uh, he's very purpose-driven. Avenging his father's death gave him a life's purpose, a very specific measurable goal. And after achieving it, he doesn't actually know what to do with his life. And he's aware of both his strengths and his limitations. So he knows he's not a strategist and he's not afraid to ask for help from somebody who's much better than he is at that. And the sword fight between him and Wesley, thinking of Wesley as a possible three, but I guess it works if he's a two as well. That's one of the reasons that sword fight is so mind-blowingly good. It's the best versus the best, and they're both incredibly well-practiced, and they're very good at what they do, and as they filmed it, they didn't use stuntmen. They really did learn that choreography. Except for the, uh, except for the scene where they twirled over the yeah. bar. That was the one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, TJ Grassi, any thoughts on Inigo? I wasn't sure. I was conflicted on him. I thought I was getting some six-ish kind of vibes from him. The scene when they're sailing to the Cliffs of Insanity, he's looking over his shoulder of the boat. He's he's watching out. There's sort of a threat assessment in him. Uh, later on, when he's drunk in the Thieves' Forest, he's telling the Brute Squad guy, Vicini said, when the job goes wrong, go back to where you got the job. This is the beginning. This is where we got the job. I'm waiting for Vicini. There's sort of a – he's deferential to Vicini's authority there. Uh, but honestly, the, the biggest thing that – Caught, confused me was the scene where he gives the sword to Wesley. I thought, I don't know if any six on planet Earth would hand over their <laughs> weapon to a, an enemy they just met. But so I don't know. I saw some six kind of stuff besides yeah. the sword handing. So uh, so this is interesting. This is a fun episode because we're all over the place here. Um, I see Inigo as a four. 
Okay, uh, particularly a navigating four, and you know, uh, and this this thing that I said a few minutes ago about kind of wetness or emotionality um, just oozed off of Indigo for me. Right? There's this, and the um, the admiration he uh, felt toward um, toward Wesley, and you know, just all of these. There was this. You know, some one of the things you'll see in fours is this sensitivity and appreciation of elegance and beauty and quality in other people, right? And this, you know, willingness to acknowledge it. And so for me, it wasn't, uh, oh, you know, now finally I have a rival worthy, but it was, wow, you're really special. You know, you're really, and so there was this, you know, it, it, everything felt heart centered to me regarding Inigo, you know, even when he, you know, asked for, you know, guidance from his father, you know, and, and all of these things, there was just this, there was just this emotionality to Inigo that uh, felt very fourish and this feeling of, you know, this, this sense of loss, right? And of course it was about his, his father and, you know, look, I appreciate wanting to avenge your father, but come on, man, let's get over it. You know, I mean, you know, it's, you know, so, <laughs> you know, and I'm as vengeful as you get, but, uh, you know, so, you know, but it just felt like this, you know, I find meaning in this quest for something, you know, and, and don't have it and otherwise. Um, the navigating four is a little bit different than the uh, preserving or transmitting four. Uh, there's, you know, this more of a kind of attunement to others and, you know, focus on the group and this sense of being part of a, a band, you know, almost that uh, you don't necessarily see in the other fours. Uh, but but that's what came through to me. And I think Mandy Patinkin in real life um, is probably a four. And, um, you know, he's you know, famous for being a, a, a wonderful singer, a wonderful, you know, piano player, all these things. He's just a, a full, all-around artist in, in so many ways. He's notoriously difficult, right, because, but it's always not so much, you know, I'm special, I want you here on my time, that sort of thing, but it's about the quality of, you know, the project. You know, if it's not elegant, if it's not fine, if it's not top stuff i don't want to be part of this crap anymore you know sort of thing. before being difficult i can't imagine that <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay tj it's my turn to ask now so do you uh do you buy the evidence mario's presented i can see that that's a strong case and i can also see something that would be a part of that is him learning and mastering sword play working with a fours personality as this is my form of creativity this is my form yeah. of creative expression sword play is very related to dance at least in terms of stage yeah. combat, which is the version of fencing that I know. Uh, real fencing yeah. is quite different. It isn't anywhere near yeah. as entertaining to watch as sword no, play in movies not. or sword play in fantasy. Uh, yeah. But this fantastical character with just how elegant he is to watch, just what a feast for the eyes yeah. he is, rather than just the proficiency of what's the minimum number of moves I would do to kill my opponent or to disarm right. him or stop him. I can see that right. being a forish thing. Yeah, yeah, it was this this artistic expression, you know. I think his for him, sword fighting was a you know not just a means for revenge; it was an artistic expression. Yeah, and if anybody would hand over their beautiful sword to an opponent, I think a four might be the one to do it. <laughs> I can see the the handing over the sword moment being uh, an illustration of his high opinion of himself, which could work with him being either a three or a four. You know, threes talk themselves up in their own minds and want everybody else to think of them as excellent and proficient. And fours have delusions of grandeur. 
in terms of like, if I'm yeah. really good at what I do, I believe I'm one of the best on the planet, one of the best that ever was. Yeah. So if my opponent has my sword and then turns on me, I'll get it from him and it won't take me long. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I just read that as like two musicians, you know, handing each other their guitars to take a look at, you know, or their, their violins or, you, you know, I, it, that scene to me seemed to be this just, you know, uh, reverence for the activity. Itself, Except you can't right? stab someone through the heart with a guitar. <laughs> well, if you well, try you break hard enough, enough to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, good. So good conversation. Yeah, I, you know, again, you know, anytime I watch, uh, I, I was watching interviews of Mandy Patinkin talking about the Princess Bride, and he he just would well up in tears all the time, you know. And uh, he was talking about how when he watched uh, the 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 rough cut of the movie with his wife. Uh, he started weeping. He says, I started weeping. And my wife turns to me and says, okay, what's the matter this time? Right. And uh, so, so he said, no, this is amazing. I can't believe I got to be in something this beautiful, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I, he strikes me as very forest in real life. And he although was right. A, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, although he played a great five in, uh, Homeland, great, great five-ish character, um, in Homeland. All right. Uh, did we miss anybody? I, I think we pretty much got all the characters. Uh, well, how about Miracle Max? Ah, yeah. The uh, Billy Crystal channeling Mel Brooks, huh? I didn't have any strong thoughts as I was watching them. It's like, could be a four, could be an eight. I mean, the, the big thing I get in terms of what makes him tick, at least in that moment in his life, is wanting to humiliate the prince who had him fired. And that turns him right around. Right. Once he finds out that that's part of it, oh, he's on board. And I can picture both yeah. a four and an eight being strongly motivated by that, but plenty of different types might be. Yeah, there, there was a lot of six going on there too, I thought, uh, you know, in some ways. But uh, yeah, tough to say. All right, great. Uh, now, overall tone of the movie, however, you know, I mean, we didn't... Uh, so for me, the whole movie, you know, the, the gestalt of the movie felt very seven-ish, okay? Uh, you know, kind of lighthearted and exciting and... There's no logic to it. It's just it's just fun and joy and sunlight, you know, uh, throughout. I think that was, you know, probably in you know the original envisioning of the story from William Goldman. But I also think that Rob Reiner, as probably a Type Seven director, really infused that into the um, into the overall feel of the film as well. Uh, thoughts on that, guys? Yeah, I agree. One of the notes that I had is something that I'd said in a previous episode, I believe about the Avengers, which is this movie's a buffet of awesome. There's just so many things given to you to delight you, to thrill you, to make you laugh, to fill you with joy, to fill you with love, monsters, sword fighting, very much like the grandfather's line when he's previewing the book, a death machine, true love, a giant. And they play fast and loose because this does take place on earth. There's references to Greenland or to Australia, but there's also these fictional kingdoms. It's also a very, very clean world. This is not the drab, mucky medieval world that I thought Monty Python and the Holy Grail does very well. It's bright, it's clean, it's colorful, it's spacious. Uh, everybody has their teeth except for the one woman in Buttercup's dream who's scolding her. Uh, <laughs> this movie, I think, also is very much a love letter there's a number of love letters in this, but one of them is, I think, William Goldman's love letter to old Hollywood. I think Wesley is yes. deliberately yes. groomed to look like Errol Flynn. And then at some point, he's costumed as the man in black yes. to look like Zorro. And that yes. kind of clean, 
doesn't take itself too seriously. Fun medieval fantasy is very much the kind of thing of the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn or the silent Robin Hood with Douglas Fairbanks or the court jester with Danny Kay. Also, the conceit that Buttercup doesn't recognize Wesley in spite of a little mask, even though it's <laughs> the same physique, same facial hair, same accent, same timbre of voice, is very much like what happens in certain Shakespeare plays or in the Decameron yeah. or in different operas where... Or Superman. Yeah, yeah. Clark Kent. Those glasses really change. Just it. a little mask. and oh, I have no idea who you are. None whatsoever. Like, it really strains credibility. But you know what? Yeah. Let's go with it because it's just so much fun. Yeah. That's something my wife pointed out as we were watching it. She's like, come on, man. Five years isn't that long. You know, he's just wearing a mask. What does it matter? You know, and, and we started joking, you know, and I took off my glasses. I, you know, I turned my head and I took off my glasses and I looked back at her and she said, who are you? you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, also, she's blindfolded yeah, so during the confrontation with Vizzini. So she's only hearing his voice throughout that and still right, doesn't make right. the connection. <laughs> I would also guess yeah. that William Goldman was a seven. I was reading his books before I knew about the Enneagram. So I wasn't filtering what I was reading through that lens. But what I yeah. remember is that he's a very fast writer. He once cranked out a novel in a week. He wrote his very first novel, novel in three weeks. Uh, he loves entertaining. And he writes both his novels and his screenplay by improvising. So when he wrote The Princess Bride, when he wrote that Wesley died in the pit of despair, which is a different name in the novel, the zoo of something. Anyway, he, he didn't know how he was going to get the character out of that. He actually shocked himself so much by writing that sentence that he had to go to the bathroom and look at himself in the mirror because he was weeping. He makes his discoveries as he goes, which sounds very sevenish to me of like, I will just jump out of this plane and trust that I can patch together a parachute on my way down. And lo and behold, he did again and again and again. Yeah, so that's interesting because I watched three or four interviews with um, uh, Goldman uh, preparing for this podcast and, you know, trying to get a sense of what I thought his Enneagram type was because I was, you, you know, there's a good case just based on his work and the the variety of genres he's written in, you know, is is would clearly point to seven. The fact that his favorite movie is Gunga Din, um, you know, um, and this movie almost felt like, you know what, this one's for me, right? I'm, I'm writing this movie for myself. And he said that he's only, he had said that he was only ever happy with two scripts that he wrote, um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, again, another sevenish sort of movie. I think the Paul uh, Newman character is very sevenish there. Um, and this, uh, again, a sevenish sort of film. His affect in the interviews didn't feel sevenish, but, um, but I couldn't put another type on him either. So, you know, I'm, I'm very open to the idea of him being a seven. Yeah. Particularly in his interviews with Charlie Rose, who is very much a seven, I think. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I can buy that argument. So we have our final category uh, that we uh, try to end these episodes with, and uh, that is, would this movie be better if the main character was a one, a four, or an eight? Uh, now, we kind of have two main characters here, I guess, so we, you know, we can either pick or we can uh, you know, go back and forth. And as the main characters, I'm thinking Wesley and Buttercup. Um, so let's start with Wesley, okay? Um, DJ Daw, how about as a four? As a four, I think it's similar to what I said about Buttercup, is a 20-year-old four would probably burn with unrequited love for this 
farmer's daughter that he works under and probably do a better job of disguising that he was in love with her and then go off to make his way in the world to prove that he's good for her by becoming a great artist of some kind and probably would have got killed by the Dread Pirate Roberts. Or if he hadn't, if he'd yeah. become the Dread Pirate Roberts, he would probably not come back and just carry that torch for the rest of his life and be the lovelorn Dread Pirate Roberts, <laughs> creating shrines <laughs> to his lost love and never going back to Florin deliberately just in case she's still there and they might actually make it work because that just cannot happen. I must stay in that exquisite state of melancholy and heartbreak. Oh, good grief. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, Wesley is an eight. It would have been a very different uh, movie for sure, because I think from the get go, it would have been get the pot your damn self. Uh, you know, who, who do you think you're talking to? You know, kind of thing. It would have been more, you know, kind of the quiet man, um, you know, uh, the romance than uh, what it ended up being there. So uh, Wesley as an eight wouldn't have worked. And I don't think that Buttercup as an eight would have worked either, because there was this sort of wistful quality, this this purity to her, right? And that's a word we haven't really talked about yet, but for me, when I think of Buttercup, I think of purity um, rather than anger, hostility, and uh, you know, uh, trashiness, which uh, she would have been if she was an eight. Uh, how about Buttercup as a, how about Buttercup as a four? Just watch the movie. You'll, see, you'll get plenty of it. <laughs> Go ahead, TJ Daw. Buttercup as a T as a TJ doll interpretation of a four. Yeah. Here's my take on buttercup as a four. How would it play differently? I can see it actually playing very similarly. The difference being instead of going out to ride her horse every day, she would have painted every day or sewn or you know woven something on her loom. And that thing would have turned into something incredible. You know what it would have been like, uh, like water for chocolate in like water ah, for chocolate. Yeah, that character yeah, deals yeah, with yeah, her heartbreak yeah. by yes. mastering cooking cooking that is so incredible that it's an aphrodisiac that cannot be resisted and by making this quilt. And there's that one scene where they reveal that the quilt just goes on and on and on and on as it's being dragged along the ground for some reason. I haven't seen that movie since it came out 30 years ago. Wow. It's a good memory. All right. So TJ and Gracia, Buttercup as your version of a one, what would that look like? Well, I was thinking uh, she's constantly critical of the way that Wesley is uh, doing his chores around the farm, constantly nagging him. Uh, he leaves because he's tired of being uh, criticized by her. And when the Dread Pirate Roberts capture him, he has no reason to live. He so thanks they, him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, uh, because she's so overly critical of the, uh, the men who capture her, they ascend the cliffs of insanity and they immediately throw her off the <laughs> Very good. All right, good, guys. Uh, interesting, interesting episode, uh, interesting conversation. Uh, wonderful movie. And again, it shows us the uh, uh, how easy it is to look at something and see different sort of things. So when you're working with the Enneagram, and you know, one of the reasons I appreciate doing this podcast with you guys so much is your openness and willingness to go in with a state of inquiry rather than advocacy uh, or at least you know advocate and then inquire so uh, you know as, as we all try to do so with that we'll uh, wrap up and folks we'll see you next time thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast be sure to join us for the next exciting episode in the meantime 
Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.